Well, in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the apostle continues to unpack some very, very practical steps that we must take in living the Christian life. Now, you'll recall, just to do a, a very short review as we look at the book of Ephesians, that the first three chapters of Ephesians contain theological instruction. The second half of the letter contain instruction that is practical in nature. So chapters 1 through 3, we have doctrine. Doctrine and theology. Chapters 4 through 6, we have the practical instruction that flows forth from this important theology. Now as we move forward, we learn in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6, what the Christian life looks like. In other words, what does God command you and I to do? What does God prohibit us from doing? What does it look like, and we will look at this in a very focused way here in a few moments, what does it look like to walk in love? How does Paul's instruction affect our lives? How does this instruction in Ephesians chapter 5 in particular, how does it help us as we consider our habits? How does it transform our marriages? How does it help us in our relationship with our parents, with our in-laws, with our neighbors, with our friends? How does it instruct us with regard to temptation? And so as we begin this morning, may I challenge you, wherever you sit, in the quietness of this moment, to ask God. And I would even encourage you to literally utter this prayer. God, what is it that you require of me today? God, what is it that you are asking me to do? Not my wife, not my husband, not my children, not my neighbors, but God, what are you calling me to do? Is there something that needs to be eliminated from my life? Is there something that when I leave church today, I can say, by God's grace and through the power of God, I'm going to get rid of this habit. I'm going to get rid of this vice. I'm going to get rid of this thing that I've been struggling with in the Christian life. Or, more positively, is there anything, God, that needs to be added to my life? Is there anything that I need to start doing as a Christian? And so with, with hearts that are soft and pliable, with a mind that is ready to receive the truth from God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I invite you also to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we will limit our, our reading this morning to verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Sacred Mandate. And there are two specific things that, that surface in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Two specific things that God demands of us. There are two things that God commands every follower of Christ to do here. And the combination of these two things that we're going to look like over the next several minutes make up what we're calling the sacred mandate. Let me warn you in advance that the sacred mandate focuses intensely on our conduct. It focuses on the way we live our lives. And the first item that we're going to look at is found in verse 1. Read it once more with me. Therefore, and whenever we read the word therefore, we're all accustomed to what should take place in our minds. We should ask ourselves a question. Someone yell it out. Wow, you're listening. What's it there for? On the basis of all that we've been learning over the, next, the last several weeks, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Notice the first command. Our conduct is to be riveted on God. Our conduct is to be riveted on God. 
Why do I say that? Well, Paul says very specifically in verse 1, we are called as followers of Jesus to be imitators of God. To be imitators of God. Now, if, if you're a highlighter, if you like to... I was talking to someone just a few minutes ago who had a, a packet of four or five highlighters. Just, it just made me so happy. If you're a, a highlighter, you like to write in your Bibles, I want to encourage you to, to highlight a word that would probably not be the word if you were doing Bible study. It would not be the word that would automatically jump out at you. I want you to highlight the word be. Be. The, the word be. Like, are you sure? Yes, it's the word be. This is the operative word in Ephesians 5 verse 1. This is what I like to call the anchor word. It's an absolutely crucial word. It comes from a Greek word that means this. It means to enter or assume a specific kind of condition. It means to enter into a state. It means to exist. And here's the bottom line. It means to behave. Now, when we think about behavior, when we think about the way we live our, live our lives, there are, all, there, there, there are tons of options, aren't there? There are ways that we can live. Some people choose to, to have a behavior that is selfish in orientation. Would you do me a favor? And I just want to see if, if we're all playing with a full deck this morning. Would you raise your hand if you've ever manifested behavior that was selfish? Wow, it's like a revival of selfishness. We have all been selfish from time to time. Some of us are selfish a lot. That is behavior that is addressed specifically in the Word of God. Other people have a behavior that is manipulative. You are very good at, at twisting words. You are very good at, at twisting a situation for one end so that you look good and that someone else looks bad. Other people's behavior may be deceptive in orientation. Your behavior may be lazy. Your behavior may be narcissistic. That is to say, you love yourself more than anyone or anything else. You are a person who is filled with pride. Or, you may be here this morning and your behavior could be characterized by, by passivity. The men who have been involved in Ironman over the last, really, six years have, have heard this word flow forth from my mouth many, many, many times. Why is it? Because passivity for men is one of the results of the curse. You know, there's, there are two ways, and I'm speaking directly to men now, there are two ways that, that men are recipients of the curse. One is that you're passive, that is, you just sit back and let the world pass by. And the way that looks in your home is, if you're passive, your wife becomes the leader of your home. Now, this is not a popular thing to say in this culture, but the Bible never allows the woman to be the leader in the home. I know, it's, it's, I'm going to get killed, right? Arrows are flying at me. But the Bible, as we will see later in Ephesians, specifically tells us that the woman and the man, the husband and the wife, who are equal, who are equal before God, while they are equal, it is the husband who bears the responsibility to lead his home. So men, if you're passive, guess what's going to happen? There will be a leadership vacuum. And if your wife is gifted, and if your wife has leadership abilities, and if your wife likes to take the bull by the horns, guess what will happen? She will. She will. And guess who bears the responsibility for that? This is the shocker. Not her. You. Men, if you are struggling with passivity and your wife steps in to fill that leadership vacuum, men, it is your fault. And so it is time for you to step up and to lead in your household. Now, there's another way that men are affected by the fall. There's not only passivity, but there is the, the, the sin of being overbearing or dominant. It looks something like this. You, you come home and you sit in your big chair and you say, Woman, get me a Diet Coke. And where's my dinner? Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but do you know there are men like that? 
That is the sin of dominance, where you're a heavy-handed, authoritarian leader. And I've even heard it said like this, God tells me I'm the leader of my home, now get things done. That, that is a sinful, sinful way to behave. And so there is passivity, there is dominance, there is manipulation, there is pride, there is selfishness, there is a narcissistic personality. Let me say this, none of these things are appropriate for anyone in the kingdom of God. None of these things are options for people who strive to conduct their lives in a God-centered way. These are simply off the table. These are not options for a follower of Jesus. Additionally, the way that we behave, men, women, boys, girls, teenagers, the ways that we behave will have a direct bearing on the relationships or what I like to call our sphere of influence in our lives. The choices that we make, the behaviors that we manifest will have a, a ripple effect, if you will, with our friends, with our family members, and with our church family, with our co-workers. Our attitudes have a powerful effect on everyone who comes onto our path. The verb be here that I've asked you to highlight, if you're a highlighter in your Bible, once again means to enter or assume a particular state or condition. It points to behavior, and I just, in passing, want you to know that the grammatical construction is is vitally important here. The, the verb be is actually a present tense verb, and it means this, you're to do this day after day after day after day after day. It's also written in the imperative mood. And so this is a power-packed word. It's why we're highlighting this. We are to be something. There is a command here that we are to obey as a matter of habit, not just today and not just tomorrow, but every day throughout the course of our Christian lives. And the state or the condition that we are called to assume is found, obviously, in verse 1. Here is what we are to be. We are to be, we are to assume this state or condition as imitators of God. That is, we are to imitate God Almighty as, as a habit in our lives. Now, I want to have you focus now on the word imitate. The word imitate comes from a, a very interesting Greek word. It's the, it's the word mimetes. Mimetes. Now, I, you don't hear an awful lot of Greek from me. I, I, I hold a lot of it back because a lot of people aren't interested in it, frankly. But the word mimetes, I'm sure some of you can figure out what the English word that is derived from mimetes is. Do you hear the word mimic in there? It's the word that, that we know very well as mimic. Children understand what it means to mimic. When I was a, a child, and I think many children are like this, I used to like to mimic my brother. He would say, hey, look at the truck. Look at the truck. He would walk a certain way. I'd walk a certain way. He would do a certain thing. I would do a certain thing. And whenever you mimic someone, it really gets under their skin. And so mom or dad would say, you stop mimicking your brother. You stop mimicking your sister. Well, what we're called to do here is that we are called to, to mimic God. We are called, if I can speak so crassly, to be copycats. We are to do what God does, think what God thinks, act in ways or engage in behavior that is unique to God alone. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says this, I urge you then to be imitators of me. We know that verse very well. Paul says, okay, to the people of God, you are to be copycats of me. That's really something else. If you think about it, the apostle says, mimic me. But then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, and you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Scripture says, and we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. 
but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so in Ephesians 5.1, Paul does this. He commands every follower of Jesus Christ to imitate God, to, to mimic God. I want to ask, who is this God that we are called upon to imitate? Who is this God that we are called to mimic? Would you hold your finger in Ephesians 4? And I want to have you just briefly look at a few passages with me to give you an idea of who it is that we are called to imitate. Go back to Exodus chapter 15. And look with me at Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Truth be told, I think this is probably my favorite verse in the book of Exodus. It's the one that just instantly popped into my mind as I began to wrestle with this question. Who is it that Paul is calling us to imitate? Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And you probably at this point are saying to yourself, I am instructed to imitate this God, this majestic and glorious God. It gets more interesting. Go over to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 14. Isaiah 43, verse 14. This is the God that we are called to imitate. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send them to Babylon and bring them down as fugitives, even as the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This is a sovereign God. This is a majestic God. And we are called to imitate Him. Isaiah 44 verse 6 continues. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 8. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from old and have declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, not any. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is none besides Him. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And I hope by this point you're asking yourself once again, I am called to imitate this God, the God who is, is holy, holy, holy. Hold that thought and look at another thought. Why then are we commanded to imitate this thrice holy God? There are a number of reasons. There are a number of reasons why we are called and commanded to imitate God. First and foremost, because we imitate the ones that we love. I'm sure you understand this quite well. You imitate the ones you love. Anyone who has ever had a hero knows that you, you tend to gravitate toward that hero. You dress like that hero. You talk like that hero. You walk like that hero. Why? Because you imitate those whom you love. There's another reason we're commanded to imitate God, and that is that we, we imitate those whom we value. Additionally, we imitate those whom we strive to be like. I'll give an example of that in just a moment. And finally, we imitate God. We are called to imitate God because whomever we imitate speaks volumes about what is truly important to us. Finally, I want you to see the context of this sacred mandate. And look at the context in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God, comma, as beloved children. This is the context of this sacred mandate. The Bible refers to the people of God as beloved. It's a special word for the love with which God 
possesses. It's a love that he, he, he directs towards you and I as children of God. We are dearly loved and cherished in the eyes of God. And the word for children there, we are called beloved children, is a term of endearment. It means that we are, are special We are special in the eyes of God. And so, as God's covenant people, the ones whom God has has showered His agape love upon, the one to whom He sent His Son to die for, we are called upon to imitate this God. Now, I promised an illustration. When I played competitive tennis in high school and in college... I played clo- I paid close attention to three players. These are all players who have gone off the scene for the front two rows for the young people. You might not have even heard of some of these players. I hope that's not the case because these are amazing players. But the three, and just for fun, you might ask, who is it that Pastor Dave really looked up to in high school and college? Numero uno. Bjorn Borg. Remember Bjorn Borg? I saw, oh, grunts and groans. Oh, yeah. Maybe the greatest tennis player in all of human history, in my mind. I loved Bjorn Borg. Why did I like him? Number one, he had long hair. So cool. But he was a player with tenacity. He played with tenacity on that tennis court. Then there's a second player, and I can already hear the conversations at lunch today. I can't believe Pastor Dave liked him. John McEnroe. John McEnroe. Why did I look up to John McEnroe? It was the serve and volley. One of the greatest serve and volleyers that has ever existed. He was also a, a gutsy player. And then the third player is an absolutely amazing athlete. His name was Yvonne Lendl. And one of the reasons I liked Yvonne Lendl, I loved the clothes that he wore. He looked so cool. In fact, I, I saved up money when I worked at the, the Lacey Dairy Queen so I could get the Yvonne Lendl sweatsuit. It was an amazing sweatsuit. I, was, I played better on the court when I had the Yvonne Lendl sweatsuit on. He was also a a man with steely determination. That's why I rooted for him. And so what I found was when I would emulate Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe and Yvonne Lendl, I found myself picking up, subtly picking up the qualities that made them the kind of both men and players they were on the court. And these are qualities that are good, bad, And also very, very ugly. There are good things we can pick up from our heroes. There are bad things we can pick from our heroes. Two words, John McEnroe. But listen, when we imitate God, it's a totally different proposition. It's a totally different proposition. For God has no weaknesses. God has no deficiencies. And there is, there is no one who is more worthy for you and I to emulate than God. There is no one in the universe who is more worthy of being mimicked or imitated than Almighty God. And so what happens? Like I imitated three, these three tennis players, when we begin to mimic God, when we begin to obey the commandment to, to imitate God, guess what? We begin to live more like him. Now, may I say, we will never in this earthly life become fully like God. There are some religions who say you can become a God. We will never become a God. We will never come close to being a God, but we are called to imitate God. We are called to mimic him. And so we pick up the qualities when we imitate him that are unique to God. Now, I want to challenge you this morning as we think about this first point to have conduct that is riveted on God. I want to challenge you to take stock of your life. I want you to think about the way you conduct your life. And if you're honest with God, you you will begin to see that there are areas of deficiency in your life. You begin to see that there are areas of weakness in your life. Most notably, there are areas of sin that need to be addressed in your life. 
And if you honestly evaluate your life, you will soon discover that the command to imitate this holy God seems an impossible feat. It seems like, like we'll never get there. I struggle with sin. I struggle with my weaknesses. I struggle with carnality. Will I ever come to the point where I can begin imitating God? I want to give you three very important points of application. I want to remind you that God promises. He promises to glorify His people. In the days that you struggle and feel like, I'll never reach the point where I'm imitating God. Remember, God promises to glorify His people. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This morning, if you are justified by faith alone, there is a promise in Scripture that you will be glorified. You say, Pastor, but you don't understand. There is a promise that you will be glorified. But pastor, you don't understand. You don't know what I did yesterday. You don't know what I did when I was in college. You don't know what I did in my previous marriage. The list goes on and on and on. If you have been justified by faith alone, God promises to glorify you. Second, God promises also to transform His people. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Number three, God promises to complete the good work He started. Do you ever feel like... Up and down and up and down and two steps forward and three steps back. You feel like you're not making progress in the Christian life. Paul says this in Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so the first aspect of what we're calling the sacred mandate is that our conduct must be riveted Upon God. That is, we are called to imitate God. Our affections, what we love, needs to be centered on God. We purpose in our hearts to imitate Him. Our desire is to live godly lives. May I say to husbands, if you will live a godly life, it will radically influence your marriage. Wives, if you live as a godly wife, it will have a profound effect and radically change your marriage. Children, if you will live as a godly young man or a godly young woman, it will have an amazing effect on what your home life looks like. Our conduct must be riveted on God. There's a second thing I want you to see in verse 2, and that is that our conduct must be rooted in love. Verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's what the scripture refers to as walking in love. And I want you to see two things about this very important phrase. First, I want you to see it's a command. Like we learned in verse 1, we are commanded to be imitators of God. There's a command also in verse 2, to walk in love. The word walk, it's a, a word that I have I've studied really for many years. I'm fascinated with this word. And the reason for it is because Paul loves to use this word. It's a word that means how we live. It describes our conduct. It describes our behavior. It's a word that focuses on the, the general pattern, the way that we live our lives. And it's found throughout the pages of the New Testament. Romans 6.4, we must walk or live in newness of life. Romans 8.4, we must walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we must walk or live by faith, not by sight. 
Now, here's what's fascinating as we examine this command. Paul addresses a very specific kind of walking in verse 2. He says that we are to walk in what? How are we to live? We are to walk in love. That is, we are to walk in agape. One of the Greek words for love or translated love. So, for example, this is the kind of love that husbands are called to love their wives with. Husbands, we are called, as we will see later in Ephesians 5, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, That should feel like this weighty, weighty imperative. How does Christ love the church? We're going to look at it here in a moment. And it is a weighty thing to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and I with an agape love. This is the, the, the sacrificing God-centered kind of love. This is the command. Now move forward with me and look for a moment at the criteria. The criteria, you see, points to a standard The criteria points to a benchmark, and we've already seen that we are to walk in love. This is the way we are to live our lives. But this walking in love has a specific and a focused criteria. Read it with me. And walk in love as Christ loved us. That is, at a point in time, Christ loved His people. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, here's what Paul's doing. He's giving us a practical way that we are to imitate God. How do we do it? We walk in love just as Christ loved us. Now, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ... And I I, I trust and I pray that this will knock your socks off. You can see it right in verse 2. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills two conditions. The first condition is he fulfilled the condition of perfect obedience. How did Jesus Christ perfectly obey the Father? Well, in eternity past, he obeyed the Father in agreeing to become Incarnate, He agreed in eternity past to come as the God-man, to be born as a virgin to Mary and Joseph. And so he came in obedience, and then what did he do? Throughout the course of his life, he lived an obedient life. He never had a sinful thought. He never conducted himself, he never conducted his life in a way that wasn't completely pleasing and glorifying to the Father. This is perfect obedience. But there's a second condition that he fills. And that is the condition of being a sin-bearing substitute. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Would you stop just for a moment and, 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 and ponder the meaning of that? Put your word or put your name in that sentence. He gave himself up for Daniel. Can you imagine? He gave himself up for Josiah. Imagine that. He he gave himself up. He obeyed the Father and he became a sin-bearing substitute for the glory of God and on your behalf. The word gave means to sacrifice. It means to, to endure the loss of someone or something. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all things? Or in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved and gave Himself up for me. So this is the criteria for walking in love. We must walk in love by following in the footsteps of our Savior. We walk in love by by pursuing and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the big question as we close. How do we do it? What does this look like? 
How does this play out in reality? I want you to see several things by way of practical application. First, we must walk in a way that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can apply this specifically and directly to your life. You know exactly what's taking place in your homes and in your families and your place of of employment, wherever you engage in living the Christian life. We must walk in a way that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 10. And the reason I want you to look at this verse is because I want you to understand that the biblical reality of justification by faith alone does not mean... I don't know how I can make that more emphatic. The biblical doctrine of justification by faith faith alone does not mean that because we have right standing with God, because we have been forgiven of our past, present, and future sins, it does not mean that we sit and do nothing. There are some who believe... That very heresy. That we are justified by faith alone, and then I coast. The reformers used to say this. We are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Do you get that? We are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That is, justifying grace produces fruit. Are you saved by what you do? Heavens no. But if you are justified, justifying grace will, by definition, produce spiritual fruit. And if you never see spiritual fruit in your life, you are not a Christian. There's a message we don't hear much in our culture. But pastor, I signed the card. But pastor, I went forward. But pastor, I was baptized. Or I, I became a Christian at Camp Gilead. Here's the question. Does fruit issue forth from your life? No fruit, no justification. Fruit is the necessary supernatural result of a person who has right standing with God through Jesus Christ. Number two, we must walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have received. We saw this several weeks ago, maybe several months ago. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says something similar in Colossians 1.10. We walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. I had a friend when I was 19 years old by the name of James. And James made a a faith commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least claimed to make a faith commitment, but he he was not in any way living the Christian life. He was not serious about Jesus. He was not serious about the Word of God. He was not serious about holiness. He was not serious about being equipped in the local church. In short, he was living a carnal life. And I challenged James. I said to him, Today is the day. You need to begin walking with Jesus in a saving way. And I'll never forget his words to me. I'll do that when I'm old and gray. But now are the days for fun. Did you know that a sentiment like that will lead a person to eternal judgment? For we are called to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And when we believe, when we are justified, justifying grace will by definition produce spiritual fruit to the glory of God. Number three, we must walk in the light. We must walk in the light. We will look at this verse soon. Verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 5. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. If you're here this morning and say, I I, I desire to imitate God. I desire to walk in love. And you're struggling with sin. My suspicion is 100% of Christians this morning are struggling with sin. 
Come into the light. Come into the light. Walk in light. Confess your every sin. Stay close to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because at that cross we find forgiveness from our every sin. Number four, we must walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We must walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Paul addresses this in Colossians chapter 4 verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer to each person. We walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Number five, we walk in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what does that look like? Over the years, I have, I have many people who will ask me, how do I determine what the will of the Lord is? Well, the Bible is very clear. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. What is the, God, what is the will of God for our lives? Verse 7 For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Finally, would you turn with me to Second John, near the end of your Bibles? Look with me at, at Second John, verse 4. Second John, verse 4. And if you want to hold your finger in Third John, we're going there next. Second John, verse 4 says that we must walk in truth. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in. In truth. One of the most heart-wrenching things for me as a pastor is that when, when a parent comes to me, or when a parent comes to Jareen and myself, and they say, we are struggling because my child is walking in darkness. I want young people to understand that the, that, that the, that the burden of a child who walks in darkness is, is one of the greatest burdens that a child could ever, that a parent could ever bear. And you say, well, now you're making me feel guilty. That's the point. So young people, here's a verse I want, I want to address to you and, and make it one of your favorite verses. In Third John, verse 4, listen to what the Apostle John says. And by the way, I wish, I wish you could all see the front two rows. You would think they'd be shaking in horror. I see, I see lots of eager men and women of God this morning, ready to hear this verse. It goes like this. John the Apostle says, I have no greater joy than that to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And how do moms and dads respond to that? Amen. At this point, it doesn't matter about success or hobbies or how you're doing with your personal development plan. Those are all neat things, right? But the very most important thing is that our children are walking in truth. And it's the same for all of us. How do we, as the people of God, imitate God? How do we walk in love? We walk in truth. You remember Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so the sacred mandate this morning is this. Our conduct must be riveted on God and also rooted in love. And the sacred mandate becomes a reality when we begin doing these things, when our affections are riveted on God, when our conduct is, is rooted on God. But can I be really, really honest with you? Can I just cut straight with you this morning? I think I alluded to it earlier. When you begin to wrestle with this sacred mandate, that you realize that you're required, you are commanded by a holy God to be riveted upon Him. That you are commanded that your conduct be rooted in love. If you understand this this morning, it should cause this holy sense of uneasiness in you. Do you understand what I mean? 
Like, we are called to be riveted on God and rooted in love. This should cause you to scratch your head and say, I don't think I can do it. I think it's too difficult. I think it's too challenging. This should cause a a holy restlessness in your soul. And the reason for this holy restlessness and this holy uneasiness is because you're on the right track. You can't do it. And I can't do it. You simply can't obey God apart from grace. And so the only way that we can obey this imperative, these imperatives this morning, is by clinging to grace. It is the gospel of grace that enables you to participate successfully in the sacred mandate. It is the gospel of grace that enables you to obey. That is the one thing I want you to take away this morning, that it is grace, it is the gospel of grace that enables me to obey. Before Jerry Bridges went to be with the Lord, he said something, and it is probably the most impacting thing that he ever said in all the books that he ever wrote during the course of his earthly life. He said this, Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But then he said this, And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And in two sentences, Jerry Bridges, he, he covers all of us. He covers those of us who are, are enjoying ourselves and living before God in holiness. And he also covers those of, uh, those of us who are living in defeat and struggling with sin. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so the question that surfaces, and I I shared shared this with you last week, in the seminary class, the professor who said, I'll listen to you preach one time to a student, and at the end of your message, I'm going to hold up a sign that says, So what? So what? This is the so what. Husbands and wives, obeying the sacred mandate will radically change your marriage. If you imitate God and walk in love, here's what will happen to marriage tension. It evaporates. The amazing thing is if if we had a chance to just sit down by a great big roaring campfire right now, and we went around the the sanctuary, my suspicion is that many of you would say, let me tell you about my marriage tension. If you will, by God's grace, participate in the sacred mandate, that tension can go away. If you imitate God and walk in love, the world, and I'm speaking to men at this point, will stop revolving around you. If you imitate God and walk in love, the world will turn their eyes to the Savior because your actions are rightly representing the nature of God. Children, teens, young people, so what? Obeying the sacred mandate will revolutionize, as I said earlier, the relationship you have with your parents. If you imitate God, think about this, if you imitate God and walk in love, guess what happens to rebellion? If you imitate God and walk in love, rebellion goes away. If you imitate God and walk in love, selfishness vanishes. If you imitate God and walk in love, your Savior will be exalted. He will be magnified, which will only magnify your personal time of worship with God. Now to all people, obeying the sacred mandate will revolutionize your life. My hero, Martin Lloyd-Jones, they call him the doctor, the Welsh pastor and theologian, said, as you and I imitate God and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn amongst many brethren, our lives and our activities will go up into the presence of God as a sweet-smelling savor. God will enjoy it. God's father heart will swell with love and satisfaction as he sees his children imitating him in the sight of men. 
men and women, our, our conduct must be riveted on God and rooted in love. And so I would ask this morning, have you come to the cross to receive saving grace? Have you come to the cross to receive the forgiveness that is yours for free as you bank all your hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to the cross for divine enablement to carry out what we're calling the sacred mandate? And may I close by urging you to stay close to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only at the cross that we receive the grace that we need to to live the Christian life. It is only at the cross where we have right standing with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only at the cross where, where we are given everything we need to live the Christian life. Second Peter says his divine power has given us everything we need. So why are we running to self-help books? Why are we running to secular counselors? The word of God has given us everything we need to live the Christian life. May we believe it. May we bank on it. And may our conduct be riveted on God and rooted in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these two verses in Ephesians. I pray that uh, these imperatives would take lodging in our heart. They would take residence in in our hearts and minds. And that you would remind us, the people of God, that the only way we can participate, the only way we'll have a desire to obey, the only way that we have any hope of obeying is by clinging to gospel grace. Thank you, Father, for this great hope that we enjoy in Christ. God, we confess that apart from your Son and his saving work on the cross and the perfect life that he lived, uh, we are doomed. We are hopeless. But God, you have not left us without hope. You have not left us without a Savior who forgives every person who trusts in Jesus and turns from their sin. So if there's anyone here this morning who has never come to that point in their lives, they have never come to the foot of the cross to receive forgiveness, to cast aside their sin, I pray that would happen in the quietness of this moment. Would you revolutionize someone's life this very moment? God, I also pray for for students, for teens, as they struggle in relationships, not only at home, but also uh, with their friends and their co-workers. God, that the sacred mandate would have a transforming effect on their lives as they learn what it means to imitate Jesus, as they learn what it means to walk in love. I pray for marriages, that even this day, that this week, that marriages would be transformed because we decided to cling to grace, that we decided to to be imitators of God and to walk in love. Thank you for this great hope that we have. And now as we come to the table... We're reminded of what these elements represent. The bread that represents the body of Jesus. The the cup that represents his blood. And I'm reminded, God, that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, I have no satisfaction. I have no life. I have no forgiveness. I have no freedom. I have no hope. And so we, we participate in this ordinance out of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ who called us to do these things until he comes. And so we do it in obedience. We do it to find our satisfaction in you, Jesus. And we thank you again for the hope that we possess. Amen. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, uh, first of all, if you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here. And we would like to invite you to take part in the Lord's Supper with us. The only biblical requirement for doing so is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You've placed your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. We do this uh, together as, as believers to remember what Christ has done for us. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.